Well, good morning again. Perhaps this time you can hear me. So uh, about, I think it was 1980, so about four decades ago, the popular singer Diana Ross had a number one, Billboard number one hit song called Upside Down. It was about uh, romance that was causing emotional upheaval in her life. And probably all of us can relate in some way or another to this feeling that our life is upside down. Perhaps it is a, a, a romantic involvement of some sort, uh, one that ended, or perhaps the Lord bringing someone into our life and ending in a marriage and how that can turn our lives upside down. It could be financial, financial uh, windfall, or financial failure. Again, this upside down could be positive or negative. Uh, another thing that can turn our lives upside down is the loss of a loved one, but also the birth of a child. And about 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago now, a young Israelite virgin named Mary had her world turned upside down by the announcement of the angel Gabriel coming to her and telling her that she was going to have a child. Not just any child, of course, but the very Son of God was to be born to her, to, through her. And this turned her world upside down so much that she gave forth a song of praise to the Lord. But more than just personally, she understood that this was part of how God was turning the world upside down, that everything was going to change, not just in her life, but in the world through this baby that was to come to her. See, she recognized that the God of the Bible, who historically confounds human assumptions, is turning the world upside down through the coming of Jesus Christ. It began with her life, but extended out from there. And so that's our passage today, is in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Included in there is what we know, commonly called the Magnificat. Mary's uh, song or hymn of praise to God for what he is doing in her life and the world. And what I hope to see, hope that we can see here, is that this song of Mary is very personal. Uh, this whole passage is very personal for Mary, but it's also what we would call eschatological. And that's a word that probably we don't use every day. Uh, but that we may be familiar with, simply means having to do with the end times, with the end last days. And Mary recognizes that through the coming of Jesus, through this announcement of who her baby will be, that God is bringing about the fulfillment of the blessing, of the promise to bless his people. And of course, the flip side of that is always that there will be judgment for those who reject him. So I hope we, again, I hope we see through this, there's both a personal aspect and an eschatological, having to do with the end times aspect of this passage. So I'm going to read, we're going to read this in two parts, actually, because I think it really breaks down that way. So the first of our, I think I have a slide, actually, for our, our passage, verses 39 through 56, break it into two basic parts. There's the scene, verses 39 through 45, gives us a setting, right? Who's there? What's the occasion? What's going on? And then there is the song that Mary gives forth with praise. So I'm going to read just verses 39 through 45 to begin. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We're going to stop there for now. We'll read the rest of this passage shortly. But what I hope we see here is that there is a, it's a very common personal element to it, right? I mean, you have two ladies who are related to each other, who are both with child, and they come together to encourage each other, to perhaps to commiserate with each other, uh, right? This goes on every day all over the world. It has for thousands of years, right? As long as women have been having babies, this has happened. But this, so in a sense, this is very common, just a very personal time for uh, Mary and Elizabeth who are related to each other to share this special time together. But it's also much more than that, much, much more than that. There are signs here in our text pointing us to the fact that there's something bigger going on. There's something about what God is doing in the world, not just in Mary's life and not just in Elizabeth's life, but in the world. Eschatological signs, again, signs that the end times are being inaugurated here. We see a few of these, just to bring them out. Uh, in verse 41, we are told that, of course, so Mary had gone to the house and Zechariah's house, Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, and she greets Elizabeth, right? And when Elizabeth heard the greeting, we read in verse 41, the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This child, who as the angel had told uh, uh, Zechariah, would be a prophet. He would be the, the forerunner of the Messiah, a special baby who would grow up to be John the Baptist. When this baby leaped in the womb of Elizabeth when she heard Mary's voice. Later in verse 44, we're told, Elizabeth relating this to Mary, and says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, this points us back again. Luke's readers would be very keen to this. Back in Malachi chapter 4, in verse 2, we read this. In Malachi chapter 4, as you may know, is the last chapter of the Old Testament. It is about the end times. It's about the last day, God's great day. And we read here, he says, But for you who fear my name, the prophet says, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I don't know. We don't live in an agrarian society the way that they did, and probably most of us aren't very familiar with calves in the stall. Uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer, and I have a few memories as a very small child before he retired of being around that, but basically it consisted of always make sure you wear boots and avoid certain stepping in certain things when you're out in the barnyard. It was what I remember. I don't remember calves leaping from stalls, but the scene here is the idea that when a calf is born, uh, the, the cow and the calf are typically confined to a stall for their own protection and time, and, and that when the calf is then released, the calf is, feels free, right? Uh, and leaps and bounds around in excitement and youthful enthusiasm in the yard. Uh, perhaps we could relate better to uh, young people who are 
feel that they are confined sitting at a desk all day at school or whatever it might be, right? When they have an opportunity that's recess or the end of the day and they just have boundless energy, they bounce around and leap and they feel such joy to feel that they are free. And God is saying here through the prophet Malachi that uh, when God visits his people, when he, when he inaugurates and begins to, fuf- to, to fulfill his promises to his people to bless them, you will go out, those people will go out leaping like calves in the stall. That's us. We will leap. We will leap with joy. And here we see that John the Baptist, still in the womb, leaps with joy at the very, the very voice of Mary. So again, this is pointing us to there's something bigger going on here. There is God fulfilling the promises to his people. We see this as well in verse 42. When Elizabeth, we're told she was filled with the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 41, and then she exclaims with a loud cry, a lot of enthusiasm, right? Joy. And she says this, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is an allusion, a quote from Deuteronomy 28.4. And in Deuteronomy, it's the... Uh, the Israelites are waiting to go into the promised land, as we may recall. And they have a final word from the Lord through Moses. And in Deuteronomy 28, he reminds them of all the blessings that will come to them if they will keep his covenant, if they will obey him and follow him, love him, serve him. He has all these blessings for them. And of course, there are also warnings there if they do not. But uh, the focus here is on that there is a promised blessing for obedience. And it says in Deuteronomy 28:4, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed be the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth here quotes that and applies that to Mary. She says, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Again, this is a sign. Luke is indicating that here is the beginning of the fulfillment of the blessing that will come through obedience. There's going to be obedience to God's word and there's going to be poured out the blessing that God has for those who will serve him, those who will be faithful to his covenant. And in fact, as we know, it will be the baby Jesus himself who will be faithful to that covenant and then will usher in that time of blessing through for God's people. So again, it's very personal, but there's a lot more going on here. And finally... Uh, there's allusion to Psalm 110 in verse 43. Elizabeth continuing, she says, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The mother of my Lord. There's a reference again to Psalm 110.1, which is a messianic psalm. and is a psalm about the Christ, God's anointed king where we read in verse 1, it says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The song of David in the New Testament brings us out very clearly that this Lord, that Yahweh says to my Lord, Yahweh says to his anointed king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Elizabeth refers to this, indicating that She understands, again, in the Holy Spirit, that Mary is with child, but not just any child, but with the 
God's anointed king, with the child who will pour out the blessing upon God's people. And we see here that Elizabeth says something very important in the final verse of this section, of verse 45, about Mary. It's a reminder to us, it should be, that all of these blessings that God has for his people, and that he is now beginning, there's this announcement that he's beginning to pour these out. This is coming for God's people. It's going to come for those who have faith, those who trust him. For we read in verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed. Who is that? That's Mary. Elizabeth is saying, blessed are you. Why? Because you believed. And what was it that she believed? She believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What's that exactly? Well, uh, Pastor Nate so wonderfully covered that last week, but just briefly to look at back up further or behind us in Luke chapter 1 and verses 31 through 33. Again, I want us to see that this word from the Lord through the angel Gabriel was very personal. It was about Mary, but it was also about much, much more than Mary. We read Luke chapter 1 beginning with verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Wow. Word from the Lord. Mary believes that. That's going to come to fulfillment. She's Yes, she submits herself. She, has, she had a question, right, about it. Uh, how can this be? But when the Lord, where the Lord explains through the angel Gabriel, she submits to that. Let it be done to me according to your word, right? But it's more than just personal. For as we continue in verses 32 and 33, there's a lot more that the Lord speaks to her. There's a lot more in this word spoken to her from the Lord. We read... He, that's this baby Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Elizabeth here reminds us that Mary believed that. She acknowledged that, yes, this is true. She embraced this truth that the angel Gabriel told her. This is a promise, again, of God fulfilling his promises to his people, of God being faithful to do what he had said he would do. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, God had promised to the King David before he died that after David's days, after he was gone, God would raise up a descendant of his to sit on his throne. But not just any king, this king would inaugurate a kingdom that would last forever. It would know no end. He would reign over God's people for all time. Mary here is told that this child she is carrying is that son of David. He is that promised king. He is the anointed one of God, the Messiah who will come. And she believes that. She believes that there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. There's a real sense in which as many have pointed out, that Mary is the first Christian, right? She is the first one who is told this particular person is going to be that Messiah, is going to be the Christ. He is going to be the one through whom all God's promises are fulfilled. And she believed. 
She believed. God's promises to his people always come to those who believe, who have faith. We will see that many times as we go through the Gospel of Luke. There are promises to God's people, but ultimately, who are God's people? It is those who have faith, those who believe. And we, will, we will see in a few chapters how uh, many of the Israelites thought, well, I'm good. I'm, I'm Abraham's descendant. And they're warned, no, you have to have faith, right? God can raise up, John the Baptist says, God can raise up from stones children to Abraham, right? Uh, and he will do that. Gentile stones who have a hard heart, who have no basis before God. But God will raise them up. He will give them faith. He will give many, many of the Israelites faith as well. But the point is that it comes through faith. And Mary has that faith. She's been given that faith. Elizabeth says that right here. She believed that would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so with that, I want to move on and move to Mary's song of praise. She has believed the word of the Lord and has spoken to her. She is a very personal thing, but she also sees beyond that. She sees that there is an eschatological fulfillment here, right? That the end times are dawning through this child whom she will bear. And so the song, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, breaks up into about three different distinct parts, and there's a little bit, we don't want to absolutize these, okay? In fact, we'll see that there's one verse that's kind of a transition. But for the most part, I think this helps frame it so that we can see what Mary is saying here. In verses 46 through 49, about the humility of Mary, that's what we should see, the humility of Mary here. And then in verses 50 through 53, we see the pride of the world. And then in 54 and 55, to conclude her Magnificat, she speaks of the promise of God. So we see the humility of Mary, the pride of the world, and the promise of God. And so with that, I want to read verses 46 through 55. The Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." We see Mary begins with beautiful statement. Now, just think how many of us, I can think of myself in times of life, right? We, we receive some huge blessing. It could, again, it could be a promotion at work. It could be financial success. It could be uh, 
birth of a child, relational success, whatever it could be, right? All kinds of ways that we can succeed, right? And we receive this great blessing from the Lord and we think of ourselves, right? We think, oh, that's not Mary's heart, right? Mary immediately turns and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, right? She doesn't think of herself. She thinks of the Lord and she recognizes this is a blessing. This is a sign of her faith and her humility. Oh, to God, that we all have that, right? That our immediate response is, to blessing is always, my soul magnifies the Lord. He's big to me. As Nate uh, said last, last week, that Mary's thoughts of God are high and her thoughts of herself are low. She exalts God. She magnifies him. My soul magnifies him. She knows that her blessing is a gift. She hasn't earned it in any way. Uh, and she continues and she says that in verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is, again, familiar language from the Old Testament to, that Luke is pointing us to. It's from Habakkuk chapter 3 which is the end of Habakkuk's prophecy. And just quickly, Habakkuk is kind of a different kind of a prophet. For the most, most prophets, uh, prophetic books are, here's what's going on, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to judge my people, I'm going to bless my people, God is speaking through the prophet, uh, here's what's required of my people. But Habakkuk's prophecy is a different, it's basically a conversation between Habakkuk and God, between Yahweh and Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's, complain, right? He's not happy. He, 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 he's confused. He knows that God is just, and God is supposed to be uh, the blessing of his people, but he doesn't see that here. He sees injustice. He sees wrong here, and God is to be right. So how can this be? And through the conversation, he is brought to a place of humility before God, where he is willing to submit to God and know that God knows best, that God will do things on his terms in his own time, not according to what Habakkuk's idea would be, that God sits in judgment of us, we don't sit in judgment of him. And Mary refers back to this, from, again, from Habakkuk chapter 3. It's verse 18, but I want to read verse 17, as well as 18 from Habakkuk, so we get a sense of the context of what Habakkuk is saying. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And Mary here takes that language from verse 18 and speaks it in her song of praise. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. See, again, Nate so capably brought this out for us last week, but this incredible blessing for Mary came with a cost. It wasn't all, woohoo, right? There was a negative side for her. She's a young woman who was with child and she's not married in a society that that was completely unacceptable. She will bear reproach for that. Further, she's got a tough road ahead as a mother. A very tough road ahead. In Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple, we'll see this in a few weeks, but they meet a man there named Simeon, and he speaks 
over the baby Jesus, and he speaks to Mary, and he says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. There's going to be a lot of pain involved for Mary as the mother of Jesus. But she says, I don't make, I'm not worried about the circumstances. My spirit rejoices in God and my Savior. I trust in him. Just like where Habakkuk came to. I trust in him. I trust that he is, knows best. It's, again, it's humility. And she's plain about it in verse 48 as we move on. She says, for he has looked... God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary, from some backwoods village, from a nothing special family, no prominence at all, not wealthy, humble estate. We could, this is also frequently translated lowly. She says, I'm just lowly. I'm this lowly servant. But what? But all generations will call me blessed. But God has done this amazing thing for me. Uh, From now on, people will know my blessing, that I have been given this great honor to be the mother of Jesus. Though I was lowly, now God has lifted me up and made me and, and given me a blessing. For she says in verse 49, he who is mighty, it's God who has done this, right? He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Holy is his name. A name of someone in the scripture denotes character. She's saying, Holiness is God's character. This is the essence of who God is. It's not like a name, like a label, like we think of it, right? Uh, holy is his name. He is, he is set apart. He is above. He is separated from us. Again, we are accountable to him. He is not accountable to us. He decrees what will happen. He lifts the lowly like he has done for me and done great things for me. I operate according to his purpose and his time. I am his servant. And he has done great things for me. I haven't earned them. I don't deserve them. But he has lifted me up and done this great blessing for me. Again, all this is very personal. We should never discount that just because there is so much that's eschatological here having to do with the, with the end times. This is very personal for Mary. She relates to her joy at receiving this blessing from God. Do we have that same joy on a personal level for ourselves when we receive less uh, blessing? If we don't, it's a sign that we don't have the humility that Mary has, right? That we need to recognize that we are lowly. We are of humble estate before the Lord. No matter what is going on in this world, before God, we are all the same. We are all Sinners in his sight. We are all lowly and of humble estate, completely dependent upon him for any good thing in our life. And we too can react as Mary did for all the blessings. Obviously, this is a very singular blessing, right? That Mary has received uh, a huge, huge blessing. But we all receive blessings every day that we can be thankful for. And Mary, 
furthermore, recognizes that what is happening to her and this personal blessing she has received is far bigger than her. That this is part of what God is doing in the big picture. This is part of God bringing about the fulfillment of the promises to his people that he has made. We, too, would do well to try to recognize that in our lives and to remember that whatever the Lord is doing in our life, it's not just about us, right? That it's also about what he's doing in the big picture, what he is doing in our local church, what he's doing in our community, what he is doing worldwide in his universal church and how he is bringing about the fulfillment of his promises. This can give us a different perspective on some of the times when our world is turned upside down and for the worse, but also for the better. I, uh, for the worse, I think of a, I have a friend who's older and uh, he's in his 70s now. And so his, his mother, uh, who has long since passed, of course, but she, uh, she had a difficult time. She lost uh, multiple children. She had a daughter. Uh, again, my friend's sibling died when she was, I think she was 12 or 13. Her only daughter died of cancer. A lot of grief just so much in her life. So many times the Lord turned her world upside down. Uh, but as my f- friend can relate, and he could see in his mother that the Lord used all that to prepare her. She had great compassion for people, especially other mothers who suffered loss of any kind. She had great compassion. The Lord used that in her life. He was preparing her uh, for that to be able to use her to be a great blessing to other people, and that she was. She knew just what to say because she'd been in that position. Right? She, just knew, she knew just what not to say, right? Uh, as so many of us would be awkward, she just could just slip right into that, and she just knew how to deal with those situations with other women. It was a blessing for her. I can think of, in my own life, a time of great financial difficulty, due to a lack of wisdom on my part that was devastating many, many years ago. But that produced in it, uh, because we received generosity uh, from the saints during that time, produced a desire to likewise be generous to others that probably wouldn't be there otherwise, right? Anything can happen by God's grace, but God uses all these things in our lives to bring about the opportunities for us to see that what's going on in our life is just small compared to what he is doing and that he will use our lives to bless others and to expand his kingdom. And Mary recognizes that through this personal blessing that she has received, God is doing something much, much bigger. Again, it's personal, but it's also eschatological. There is the end times are in view here. And so as we transition to the verse 50 in the second part of the Magnificat, the pride of the world, We see kind of a transition statement here in verse 50. And his mercy, that's God's mercy, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy, this word mercy is the English translation of the Greek word elios, which is the Greek translation in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, couple of centuries before the time of Christ, which translates the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant faithfulness. God's commitment to his people to be a faithful God to them and to fulfill his covenant promises. 
Mary here seems to be indicating that God's covenant faithfulness is for those who fear him. Again, as we said earlier, God's covenant faith, God's covenant is with those who believe in him, who trust in him, who follow him. And here Mary brings out another aspect of that. It's those who fear him. Fear and faith go together, actually. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is to be in reverential awe of him, to be in submission to him, to know that he is God and we are not. He is wise and we are not. That he is good and we are not. That we are accountable to him. He's not accountable to us. He doesn't have to answer to us. We have to answer to him. And to have a heart of submission before him that goes with faith. That's also faith. A desire to please uh, the Lord and to be in submission to him. And Mary says that his covenant faithfulness, his mercy is for those who fear him. Generation to generation, all times, that's who God is looking for, is those who fear him. And because, she says in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. This is a pretty clear allusion to the Exodus event where God's arm is his power to deliver. Again and again, I'm not going to read any of them, but in the, in the Pentateuch, through the Exodus event, God's arm delivers his people. His, it's representative of his strength to bring about deliverance and salvation. And Mary says that that has, excuse me, that God's strength, his power, his arm has done what? It has, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. She continues, I want to consider all this as of a piece, so in verse, verses 52 and 53, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In this, Mary pulls, draws heavily from the Old Testament of Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I do want to read that. I believe we have that. Yes. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And again, just to briefly, if we're not familiar with the details, to remember the occasion. Uh, Hannah was not an older woman, as Elizabeth was. She was younger, but she too was barren. And that was uh, considered to be a reproach in their society where if it was assumed if you were obedient and you served the Lord and you were good, then God would give you a family. Right. Again, that this was according to God's promise in the aggregate, but they made this very personal one-to-one, which was not accurate, but that was nonetheless her state. And of course, she had, beyond that, she just had the natural desire to be a mother. Making it worse, in her case, was her polygamy at the time, and her, and, and her, her husband had another wife who was uh, quite prosperous in this regard and mocked her for it. And in her desperation, she cried out to God and asked him to give her a child, and that if he would do that, then she would give him back. And God fulfilled 
her desire and gave her a child. And so she takes him back once he was weaned to serve in the temple. And we come to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Mary, or excuse me, Mary, Hannah prays this. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them to make them sit on with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, there's a lot of allusions here, right? There's God's holy, there's reference to the king, but in particular, we see in verses, verse 5 and then again in 7 and 8, there is this idea of, of a reversal, of an upside down that's going on. That uh, Hannah recognizes in her own experience that she was barren and now she's been blessed that Mary's recognizing a similar thing in her personal life. She was of humble estate, and now she's received this great blessing and how this is indicative of the way God works. This is a re And it all comes down, as Hannah points out in verse 3, says, talk no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come from your mouth. Likewise with Mary saying, he is scattered abroad, the thoughts of the proud in their hearts. Right. Now this plays out, as they see, in societal and economic terms. We don't want to absolutize this. The point is pride and humility. But in their society in particular, those who were mighty were those who were wealthy and tended to be proud. Likewise, those who were lowly tended to be poor and were Often humble, not always, but often humble. And likewise with the proud. They were not always proud. In fact, we are going to see, it's really important that we don't absolutize this. I really want us to see this. Um, later in Luke, we're going to see a wealthy man, a wealthy and influential man, Joseph of Arimathea, who proves to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. And uh, second Luke, if you will, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, one of the main points of the book is that Christianity is a respectable faith that people who are influential and have it well on in the world should embrace. And so we see people like Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul, and Lydia, a wealthy merchant, and Crispus, a ruler of a synagogue, all come to believe in Jesus. So we do not want to absolutize this idea that, uh, which we 
Some have done from Hannah and Mary that, oh, rich is bad, poor is good. In fact, uh, it's not the case at all. And sadly, we have probably all known people, I certainly have, who are very proud of not having privilege, right? Of being poor or being lonely. And they take that as some sort of chip on their shoulder that they're better than other people because of that. And we all have known many people who are very successful in this life who are incredibly humble people. But these are just generalisms and pointers to the basic problem of pride and humility. We can't absolutize that. The scripture does that very plainly, right? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's in Proverbs and then twice in the New Testament. And we are going to see repeatedly in Luke's gospel the heart that God has for those who are lowly, those who are not of any account according to the ways of this world. A leper will be healed and blessed, a paralytic, tax collectors, I mean tax collectors. If you don't get how outrageous that would have been for the people of Jesus' time, Mary's world, you will get that as we get to those. Non-Israelites, no privilege there, right? They're apart from all the blessings and covenants and God's word. God's going to bring them in. A sinful woman, a woman of ill repute, she will receive faith, salvation. And of course, here we have Mary, this young girl who was nobody to the world, right? And Elizabeth, who if she was recognized at all was because she was barren and she bore that reproach. And God blesses them. Why? Because they... Look to him in humility. In humility, they submit themselves and have faith. This is the way God works, and Mary's recognizing this. The Apostle Paul is very clear about this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he relates to them the wonder of God's choice and why he does things this way. In verse 26, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, we read, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the point. That no one can boast before God, that all would be of grace. God's grace is for those who are humble enough to recognize that and submit themselves to him in faith. Again, get used to this because this is a consistent theme in the Gospel of Luke. Right. That God is, will bless those who come to him humbly and it is frequently those who are of humble estate as Mary sees herself, those who are lowly. May we all reckon ourselves lowly <laughs> again and recognize that we are nothing but sinners before a holy God. Right? That we have no claim upon his goodness and his righteousness. 
Uh, and when we come to him in faith, believing on his son, Jesus Christ, then he has the ultimate blessing for us, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This comes through repentance. Uh, and so, uh, I'm sorry. All right. So, we continue in the Magnificat in, oops, let me flip back to where I was. In Luke, back in Luke, Luke chapter 1, 54 and 55, we continue and we see Mary speaking here of the promise of God. So, God has very personally come to Mary and he has raised her up from lowly estate, humble estate from her lowliness and has blessed her greatly. This is indicative. She recognizes what God is doing in general. This is how God works. Uh, he blesses those who come to him humbly. He lifts them up. But those who are proud or scattered will not receive his blessing. And she finally comes and recognizes, she states that this is according to God's promise. Here is fulfilled what God has promised. In 54 and 55 we read, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, the primary place to which Mary is referring to, in a sense, is to Genesis chapter 17, where God promises to Abraham to be a God unto him and to his offspring forever. This was uh, further commented upon throughout the Old Testament, in particular uh, in Micah 7.20, the end of Micah's prophecy, he declares, he says, you, that's Yahweh, will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from the days of old. Also in Psalm 98, verse 3, we read, he has remembered, that is Yahweh has remembered his steadfast love, that's his said, his covenant faithfulness or steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God has made promises to his people to be their God. That is God's ultimate program. He is taking a people for himself. He says that I will be your God and you'll be my people. That's what God is doing in the world. And Mary recognizes that through what has happened to her, through this blessing that has come upon her, to bear the Christ child, that here God is inaugurating the end times. That God is here bringing salvation and judgment. Salvation to those who have faith and humility and judgment to those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts and reject, therefore reject the Lord. And this is all according to his promise to his people, to remember his people. And again, we begin to see here, and we will see more clearly as Luke progresses, what does it mean to be among God's people? Is it a birthright? There are great privileges with that birthright, but one must have faith. One must have humility. One must fear the Lord, as Mary has said earlier, right? His mercy is for those who fear him. 
It's for those who have faith that the word of the Lord comes and blesses and brings salvation. And that is a great truth that we all must remember. And if you're among us here today and you are not a Christian, I pray that you would understand this. Right? Though no matter what earthly privileges we might have or not have, right? it all comes down to, on a very personal level, do we have the humility that God gives us in our hearts to, believe, to repent and to believe on him? This is the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners, that God is saving sinners through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That through Jesus' life, perfect life that we cannot live, that we have not lived and we cannot live, that God reckons to us that life, that righteousness to us if we embrace Jesus by faith. And that in his death on the cross as a sacrifice for sins, that God reckons to us that that is our death. Again, if we identify with him and we embrace him by faith, if we repent of our sins. And that just as Jesus was raised to newness of life on the third day, so we too, when we repent and believe, God gives us new life, new life in the Holy Spirit, a new heart that we can serve him and follow him and be faithful to him. And that in that, there is obedience, the obedience of faith. And so if you have not repented and believed the good news, the, the gospel about Jesus, I would encourage you to do so today. Uh, God has, as we have seen today, I trust, God has inaugurated his end times. His salvation has gone forth, and so is his judgment. And one day he will bring that all to a climax, and Jesus will come back in power and glory for, and claim all of those who in this life have submitted to him in faith. Well, that gospel, as it goes out into the world, uh, should be turning our lives upside down. All right? If you, when you come, become a Christian, you repent, you change your mind, you turn, you have a change of heart, there is an upset in your life. There should be an upset. That is a great sign of repentance, that priorities change, thoughts about ourselves change, thoughts about who God is change, thoughts about other people change. We look at other people differently. There is an upside-down aspect. Everything changes. Uh, and this is what God is using to remake the world. The gospel is going forth. The good news about Jesus. You know, uh, in Acts, in the book of Acts, as the gospel goes forth into the world, and Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas and others take the gospel into different places, that's exactly what it caused. Uh, many people rejoiced at the, the promise of salvation and the good news and embraced it, and others rejected it, and in fact were quite angry and upset that the uh, apostles, the evangelists, were proclaiming another king, Jesus. And in Acts chapter 17, as Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, we read of a scene where, after the preaching of the gospel, there is a, a bit of a 
a bit of a riot going on. And we read this in verse 6. And when they could not find them, that is, the apostles, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city, some of the believers in the city, before the city authorities. Here's what they said. They shouted, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These troublemakers who are going around proclaiming another king, Jesus, who are saying that God is turning the world upside down, now they've come here, and they're upsetting our city. It's an interesting testimony from unbelievers about the witness of the gospel in the world. They're just turning the world upside down. Right? It is taking those who are of humble estate and who are lowly, who have humility and faith, and giving them the gift of salvation and eternal life. So may we uh, remember that the God of the Bible, who historically confounds human assumptions, is turning the world upside down through the coming of Jesus Christ. That is our job and our role. And I pray and hope that we would uh, remember this, that this is the message that has been given to the church. That uh, just as Mary received the blessing, the announcement of the child Jesus, she recognized her humble estate and she exalted God in her blessing. So we too would do so and it would move us. Uh, we're probably not, most of us aren't songwriters, but we can proclaim the gospel. We can proclaim the good news about Jesus. Uh, others should be saying of us, these people, right? They're out there telling everybody about Jesus, up, upsetting everybody, right? Because when we proclaim the gospel, there will be people who are upset um, about it. These people who are turning the world upside down, uh, that they've come here also. But what is interesting, and I want to conclude with this, is that there is a real sense in which, if we remember that it is, is unbelievers here in Acts who are saying that the world is that these men are turning the world upside down. So maybe, really, what we're doing is not turning the world upside down with the gospel. God is not turning the world upside down through the gospel, but we're actually turning it right side up. That the reality is that the world is upside down already, right? That what is good is called evil in this world. Uh, and God is flipping that back around. It's upside down, all right, but it's actually back right side up. That's what God is doing through the gospel of Jesus. He's setting the world back right side up the way it is intended to be. He's called us to participate in that. Again, I hope that we can see that the blessing we receive, just as Mary saw that, is just part of what God is doing in the bigger picture. Right? And that we would embrace that, that we would seek to be a blessing to others, that we, would, uh, we can be an example of that, of God turning the world right side up by living rightly, right? By living in obedience to him. That's not upside down, that's right side up. And further, that we proclaim the message, the good news about Jesus, of his life, death, and resurrection. And as people respond to that, then they too will begin to live right, that they will turn their hearts to God. And so that we, in fact, are not turning the world upside down. We are not revolutionaries. We are not doing anything that uh, is not worthy of praise, but we are turning the world right side up. Let us do that.
prayerfully and diligently and seek the Lord in all things that we would be able to be a blessing to God's people always. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you and exalt you. We magnify you for your greatness and your goodness. Oh, Lord, it is a blessing to be counted among your people, and we know that that comes through faith and that that faith is a gift, Lord. We're thankful that you have granted your people repentance, and we pray, uh, Lord, that you would give us hearts that would seek the salvation of sinners, Lord, that we would see in all those around us, those who are hurting, those who are in need of the same good news which we have received, Lord, and that you would give us the grace to uh, and, the, and the, uh, the boldness to proclaim that good news about Jesus, Lord. Do this not for our sake, Lord, that any might think well of us, but for your sake, that people might magnify you and that you would be exalted and that your kingdom would come, Lord. We pray you would bring the Lord Jesus, bring the consummation of your kingdom. How we long for that day. Amen.